And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, July 18th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, no shortage of ideas for reforming Defense Department acquisition, plus... The Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council gets a new lease on life thanks to new infrastructure spending. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the intelligence community has a new data strategy just released today. It lays out the steps in the 18 intelligence agencies will have to take to develop a more data-savvy workforce and lay the groundwork for using artificial intelligence. For more on the strategy, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday and Jory Heckman spoke in an exclusive interview with the IC's chief data officer, Lori Wade. Here's an excerpt. It really hits on the the areas that we need to do in the next two years. When you get to the cover, you'll see that the data strategy is 23 to 2025. That was one of the first questions people asked me if I'd done a typo. And I answered no because we have what I believe two years in this global digital and data transformation that we are in, we have two years to really get focused on some of the foundational areas of end-to-end data management. Data is fundamental to everything that we do in the intelligence community and our ability to manage it properly and to maintain how we do data across our entire life cycle is an important part of where we're going to move the needle forward, if you will, for the intelligence community. So when I came into the role, it was very important to me to lay out where we were today, where we needed to go, and then bring all of the 18-element CDOs together. I chair the Intelligence Community Chief Data Officer Council. I wanted to bring them together and build on the work that had been done in the prior years of looking at strategically where we were with our data and our ability to manage our data across the end-to-end data management lifecycle, and then where we needed to go. And so we started with a a foundation and a base from that understanding and then built out these four focus areas uh, to keep us going forward. And from there, we had the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, and the Principal Deputy of National Intelligence come together to look at our four focus areas. And after they read through the draft strategy, they realized the impact of of what we were doing as it relates to the new national attack surface, the implications of all the emerging technologies like AI, the next evolution of the internet and immersive technologies, and where we are with our adversaries and how do we keep our operational decision advantage. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like obviously data has been so central to everything the intelligence community does. But when you try to boil this down to something concrete, what would you say some of the most important near-term milestones are for the IC? Now that the proverbial floodgates are open, the strategy's out, what's coming next here? As you'll see, the data strategy itself is a very uh, short, concise document. Uh, Behind it is a lot of deliberate and intentional action that is necessary. As again, it goes to 2025. And the steps behind each of these focus areas are very critical for us to get done. So one of the things that we started, even as this strategy was finishing its coordination, we already started a one-year action plan. Each year we'll have a one-year action plan. The one-year action plan was developed with the CDOs. They were to go back into their agencies 
coordinate with their stakeholders, with their other partners who are critical for the success, which are the CIOs, the CISOs, mission, so the collection, and all the way through to the analysis pieces. And then they were to go to their heads of their agencies to sign off on, these are the actions that we're going to sign up for for this year. So we've actually moved out already. We're about to have our second quarter review of that action plan, even as the strategy is coming out. I didn't wait on the actual strategy to be uh, released. We went ahead and started because I didn't think that we had time to waste. Some of the core and critical elements to that, and you'll see in here, we talk about a data-centric mindset, a data-centric approach. Well, that starts with having data management and data management planning at the point of collection all the way through to exploitation and dissemination. We have to have a conscious and deliberate plan for how we're working with our data. All of those things are necessary for us to be able to take full advantage of all of the emerging tech like AI. Wow. It seems by all accounts, it's going to be a busy two years under this strategy. To focus on one of the pillars of the strategy, the workforce and getting them data savvy, data ready, and prepared for all the things that you just said. Tell me in your own words, just in your own perspective, how that data literacy campaign is going to look uh, and you know what a data ready workforce is going to look like in the future. And when you see the strategy, our last but not least, and certainly not in, in priority order, is the, uh, the pillar that we have on transform the IC workforce to be data driven. And this is across every discipline, every position, from the top all the way down, down all the way up and across. It's beyond the data professionals. I I look at it in two ways. There's a data acumen and literacy that we have to bring every single IC officer up to, whether they're leading the agency, they're working on the legal side, acquisition side, no matter where you are, you're going to touch and work with data, whether it be our business data or our mission data. So we need to understand what does that mean and how does that look and how do we bring capabilities to that to help us as we move forward. And that's across every single discipline. Then I talk about data tradecraft. So our collectors, our operators, our targeters, our analysts, and our data professionals, they also need to be evolving their data tradecraft. So it's two parts for me. But every single person needs to understand where we are in the world And how does that impact us? And what are we doing to help us use our data and unlock that just value and insight as quickly as possible so that we can make decisions that are data-driven and not just from our gut? Today, people aren't understanding the volumes of data that they no longer can just even go through it on their own. So that's why we have to figure out we have technology and capabilities that we can bring to help us to do that in ways that we haven't in the past. And we need to take fullest advantage of that. But we need to ready ourselves. Lori Wade, the Intelligence Community's Chief Data Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday and Jory Heckman. There's much more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come, the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council gets a new lease on life thanks to new infrastructure spending. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It's one thing to want new infrastructure. It's another thing to get a project through a nearly impenetrable thicket of federal, state, and local environmental rules and the nearly inevitable lawsuits. That's where the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council comes in. For details, we turn to the council's newly appointed executive director, Eric Batel. Mr. Batel, good to have you with us. 
Great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And I think there might be a misconception that this permitting improvement steering council came in as a result of the infrastructure bill, but actually you predate it by quite a number of years. That's correct. The Permanent Council was established as a part of the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act in 2015. It was a add-on sponsored by Senators Portman and McCaskill, uh, who were looking at permitting reform, and they put the Title 41 onto the FAST Act. And so the FAST 41 is the piece of legislation that applies to the Permanent Council that established the Permanent Council and laid out kind of the rules of the road for how we are to operate and uh, conduct our business, established the members and our structure, and identified the covered sectors where we have the opportunity to provide additional support to project sponsors as they navigate the uh, federal permitting review process. And briefly, what are the sectors over which you have some purview? It won't be brief. Uh, we actually we have cover 18 different sectors. I won't go through the whole list. The information is available on permits.performance.gov. We have a number of resources on that website, but they cover things like renewable energy, conventional energy, electricity transmission, surface transportation, ports and infrastructure, water resources, broadband, also with the recent CHIPS Act. Semiconductor facilities are also a covered sector, as well as carbon capture. That was a large investment in IIJA, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act, and a number of others. So, you know, we cover uh, a vast array of different infrastructure sectors, and really it is uh, an opportunity for us to provide that federal support to project sponsors and convene the agencies to help identify a realistic and attainable schedule and hold them to that so that we have some reliability and predictability in the process. So your issue is really with other agencies at the federal and state and sometimes local level where projects get held up because sponsors, heck, they'd go ahead and build it, you know, in 10 weeks if they could, if there were no permitting requirements. Is that a fair way to characterize it? I think generally. Uh, I mean, we are, I wouldn't characterize it as an issue, but it is an opportunity for us. Each federal agency has their own authorizing statute that uh, directs them to do a certain thing for their mission, whether it be protecting wetlands, whether it be building roadways, whether it be building airports or supporting the nation's energy infrastructure. Each of them have their own mission, and not all the federal agencies' missions are always complementary. And so there is you know, some conflicting purpose. And so what the Permanent Council does is it comes in and provides some additional support to the project teams, both the sponsor and the federal agencies, to help them kind of understand what the expectations are for the permitting process, help facilitate those conversations so that there's no surprises, lay out a realistic and attainable project schedule that will dictate how the sequence of events and the timing of those events and hold the agencies and the sponsors accountable to those schedules. That provides some transparency and predictability to the process, but also it allows folks to be accountable to their specific actions as part of the project life cycle. And what we do is, you know, as issues come up, we convene the entities, the agencies and the sponsors to try and work through those issues. There's an elevation process. If we come to a particularly sticky issue that needs higher level input, the field staff can't resolve it on their own. But ultimately, we are not a deciding body. We are a facilitating and support body. Well, let me ask you about a hypothetical. Suppose I want to build a solar farm, one of those collector types of sites, and I need to run the wires across state lines to get it into a particular electrical grid. So now I've got two states involved, maybe a county. 
There might be a zoning issue depending on if it was a farm now and I'm going to turn it into a solar type of panel farm. What types of things come up there and how do you help people get through it? So we are, you know, as a federal agency, we are somewhat limited to our ability to influence the federal permitting decisions, but not necessarily state or local permitting decisions. But what we can do is support those conversations and provide the information that those other entities may need. We can't direct, not that we can direct our federal partners, but we can at least you know, convene that discussion and make sure that senior officials are involved and the issues get resolved. It's a little bit trickier when you get to state and local entities because we don't have that same ability to force the issue. But what we can do is ensure that they are at the table early, that we work with them to identify the types of permits that they may need in the process, and make sure that we are providing a roadmap to provide that information to them in a timely manner so that we identify what are the predicate actions that ultimately lead to a decision so that we keep that momentum. And if there's going to be a challenge, you know, getting some of that information or getting that decision, we know early so that we can start to mitigate for that. We're speaking with Eric Badel. He's executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. And since the passage of the infrastructure bill has your pace of work picked up and what kinds of things are you dealing with as a result of that law? The uh, Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, all three, provided you know a significant infusion of capital into the infrastructure markets. And we are seeing the result of that. A lot of those projects have not yet fully come to delivery. You know, they're still either in the planning phase, you know, this infusion, a lot of that money was not anticipated. And so projects are getting off the ground currently. We anticipate to see a large volume of projects come through and we expect to expand our portfolio over the course of the next several years as these projects move into the permitting phase. And in response to that, you know, we received $350 million through the Inflation Reduction Act, and that was to our Environmental Review Improvement Fund. And that is a fund that the Permanent Council administers to support investments in strategies and tools that will facilitate a more efficient environmental review process. And so with that $350 million, we are working with the agencies to identify critical needs that they have to themselves respond to the influx of projects that are coming before them, the applications that are going to be surging. And a lot of that is going to be in personnel, just putting bodies in seats to be able to receive and process these applications is a critical piece of ensuring that we maintain progress. But there's also broader tools that we are looking at, IT tools that will facilitate a more efficient transfer of information, more efficient tracking of information so that we can improve on our transparency and accountability in the overall process. The Permanent Council is not immune to the needs of having able, capable individuals in seats to be able to intake this. And so we anticipate also growing our staffing some over the next couple of years. And then there's also a broader surge of hiring that needs to occur across the federal government. And we're working with the Office of Personnel Management right now to identify capable project managers that agencies will be able to hire to help manage these projects as they come through. So there's an outstanding listing on USA Jobs for a government-wide project manager position so that we have capable candidates that apply, they get on the list, and then the agencies are able to interview and select folks to fill much-needed positions to help ensure that we are moving these projects forward accountably and responsibly. And getting to the council itself, I mean, you've got the council and then you've got the staff. What is the makeup of the council? What types of people are on there and where do they come from? 
Sure. We have uh, 13 member agencies. And again, I won't go through the laundry list, but it's, you know, the, the big players in infrastructure. So we have Department of Transportation, we have the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce, but we also have councils such as FERC, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We have also the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and a number of other agencies that all have a role in developing infrastructure and that are part of those covered sectors that I mentioned at the top. And though those agencies are represented on the council by deputy secretaries or their equivalents, so the number two person in charge at the agency who has visibility into the operations of those agencies, and we meet on a, at least a quarterly basis. We bring business to the council as it relates to overall government-wide solutions, but also very focused discussions on specific topics that are relevant, whether it be surge hiring, are there programmatic solutions that we can look at that would affect a wide swath of the agencies and the sectors that they touch. And then we have you know, more specific conversations on projects and sectors separate from the council that also enable us to have visibility into how those projects are advancing and what challenges they may be encountering so that we can then learn from that, elevate that conversation, and then have a best practice you know, that we can apply across government so that we are learning from our experience and taking those lessons learned and applying them moving forward so that we can always have continuous improvement in the process. And in a nation that sues one another over the color of a mailbox or something, so many large infrastructure projects, even when people do what they should with respect to permitting and they get all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, lawsuits come up from different groups ancillary to those projects in that area. How does the council deal with that, or what do you advise people on how to deal with that? There's nothing really you can do to stop a lawsuit or in any way you can prevail upon a court to toss it out. Yeah, that is a, uh, that's a tricky topic. Ultimately, the, the council itself has no role and no authority in the litigation sure. of individual projects. But what we can do, and this is just kind of a general project development best practice, is Ensure that you are engaging in meaningful public outreach to identify those parties, whether it be groups of stakeholders, whether it be individual landowners who may be affected by the project, who are likely to be concerned or potentially oppose a project, and engage with them early, understand their issues, and help to hopefully identify it may not be something where they are a supporter, but you mitigate their opposition and you find win-win solutions that will ultimately allow you to proceed and avoid some litigation. You're not, as you as you say, you're not going to avoid every suit that may possibly come down. There are some parties who are going to sue no matter what. And some of it is not necessarily on the merits of the project, but they're trying to make a broader statement. And that's the role that they play. What we are trying to do is look at project-specific instances and ensure that we are engaging those folks who are most likely materially affected by the project and understand their concerns and make sure that we build into the project definition a way that will address those concerns and hopefully mitigate any sort of adverse effect that they will experience. And adding all of this up, are you confident that some of the funded infrastructure will actually turn into infrastructure at some point? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not concerned that we're not going to build these things. I, I'm, I'm not even concerned that we're not building them fast enough yet 
these are big projects. A lot of these are very big, complex projects. But at the end of the day, you know, there is something along the lines of 96% of the federally funded projects go through the most routine approval uh, for permits, whether it be a categorical exclusion under NEPA, whether it be a programmatic agreement that you know, structures a more facilitated and efficient review of the environmental review process, a nationwide permit for the Clean Water Act, and, and other kind of standardized permits that don't require that high level of rigor and lengthy process. The vast majority of projects go through those sorts of routine processes. We do have you know, a few of the larger, more complex that, that take longer, that require an environmental impact statement. And those are the ones that get the headlines because they are oftentimes, by definition, the most impactful, but they are also oftentimes the most economically beneficial and most controversial. And so, you know, that takes time. But if we do it smartly, if we are intentional about how we do our outreach and our planning and consider the effects uh, make sure that we are listening to the public's concerns and, and factor those into the project design and the alternatives that we are considering. We can move through the process efficiently. We have to be smart about it, but I think it can be done. And that's a lot of what the Permitting Council is here to do, is to help provide those strategies to project teams to ensure that we are moving through the process on a predictable and accountable timeline. And that's Eric Badel, Executive Director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, empty federal offices are bad for the economy. But first, no shortage of ideas for reforming Defense Department acquisition. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Planning, programming, budgeting, and execution. PPBE has been the way of the Pentagon since the 1960s. Nobody's thrilled with it, but it persists. The latest set of recommendations for reforming Pentagon acquisition comes reinforced in a letter signed by a dozen contractors and venture capital outfits. Here with some details from Applied Intuition, one of the signatories, Ahmed Hamayan. Mr. Hamayan, good to have you on. Great to be on. Now, your company, let's begin here, is a venture-backed technology firm in the, I guess, autonomous zone that has probably been frustrated by trying to shove innovation at the Pentagon? Yeah, so Applied Intuition is a Silicon Valley software company. As you said, we focus on autonomous systems. Our mission is accelerating the adoption of safe and intelligent machines. We have a large commercial business that have been operating in that space for the last several years. And then recently, in the last few years, we started a government business. And we've been successful insofar as we are working with the Department of Defense on programs we think are essential. But we've noticed some challenges that we've experienced that have also been experienced by other of our peers and folks who are not just in the autonomous space, but in other key technologies. And that's sort of what prompted us to I think a bit more deeply about how could we be a small part of improving this process. Now, it's hard enough to sell pencils and desks to the government. That's a long, involved <laughs> process just to get on the GSA schedule. But in the high-tech, let's say, for lack of a better word, defense zone, what are some of the challenges you've seen or you've identified? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. First of all, the procurement process as a whole tends to be very long, very complex, and it tends to favor large incumbents. So securing these contracts takes a long time, a lot of resources. It takes a lot of access to particular networks. 
it tends to help existing incumbents much more at the expense of newer companies. Uh, and that could be fine uh, if it weren't the case that a lot of the innovation that's happening in the economy today in the commercial marketplace and in particular in Silicon Valley is being done by non-traditional companies, by small businesses. And so this process as it's constructed currently tends to disadvantage those newer entrants. That's one part of this. The other piece here is, and this again is in contrast to what happens in the Valley, there's very limited access to users uh, at the Department of Defense. So in the Valley, you are developing a lot of software very quickly, you're deploying it quickly, you're learning from users. The whole idea is to iterate quickly, to experiment, and then scale what works. In the Department of Defense, you can go 12 to 18 months longer, you can win contracts without having engaged with users. And so that, from our perspective, limits both the Valley's ability to deliver solutions that are responsive to the DOD's needs, and it also delivers subpar solutions to the department. Those are two things that pop to mind. Another common thing is you see a lot of compliance requirements that are both specific to certain agencies that are also dispersed across multiple agencies. It's this confusing labyrinth. It's not clear what requirements are critical to have immediately, what can be deferred. And so all of that for newer entrants to the ecosystem becomes fairly challenging to navigate and introduces friction. Whereas if you're an innovative company, what you want to do is prove that your software or your other commercial capability works sure. and you want the ability to demonstrate it and do it as quickly as possible. And this just introduces friction into that process. Well, give us an example of what it might be like to do business with a commercial client and access to users and so forth. Give us a typical case history of where you've had success commercially and what that looked like especially that idea of access to the ultimate user of the product? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one simple thing is, you know, we pride ourselves, as many companies do, on being able to deploy on our customer networks quickly, which then allows users on those networks to experiment with our tools and to give us feedback. We can do this typically within weeks uh, in the right corporate environment, sometimes less than that. When it comes to deploying our software on the government side, it can easily take much, much longer than that. It can take months if you don't have the right accreditations in place. Even if you have those accreditations in place to operate on a given network, it's unclear that they will transfer over to other networks or with other agencies. So in some sense, you're reinventing the wheel each time. Again, this is sort of like a logistical administrative example, but it has a very salient effect on the ability to deliver capability quickly. Uh, and at the end of the day, what's the point here? The point is to deliver these capabilities to users who then will be able to give feedback and do something useful. But it's not happening or not happening as quickly as it does on the commercial side. We're speaking with Ahmed Humayun, who leads federal marketing at Applied Intuition. And does that question specifically of the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process come up in their discussions with you? Do they say, yeah, we'd love to get it in here now, but we can't? because of PPBE requirements, and et cetera, et cetera. So what I was offering you was a tactical example of a challenge that we face in delivering our capability quickly. I think, so no, people aren't citing the PPBE process when they're bringing up these kinds of challenges. Where I think the broader PPBE process, and really that's, as you well know, is part of a broader set of processes like the JSIDS process, which defines technology requirements, the PPBE process, which budgets for them, and then the acquisition system, which ultimately procures solutions against them. This whole web of systems works over a multi-year period. 
It defines requirements very rigidly in the beginning. It budgets for them in a very rigid way in the middle, and then it procures them through a drawn-out process that's often opaque to industry. So as a result of that, sort of in a macro sense, processes like PPBE constrain newer entrants to the ecosystem from participating. All right. So you have signed a letter urging the defense secretary to really take a hard look at the Atlantic Council recommendations. And there is some crossover, I guess, in the ecosystem of the Atlantic Council study of this whole acquisition and inculcating technology question with a commission that's looking specifically at PPBE. And so what in the Atlantic Commission that you signed to underscore do you feel are the most important things DOD could do to speed up adoption of new technology and innovation? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so there are several things. I mean, I think the first thing is to start with recognition of the macro point, which is that the center of innovation used to be the DOD. Now it's shifted to the private sector. We know this just based on the level of investments that are being made. So if you look at the fiscal year 2024 budget, it spends maybe $145 billion on R&D. If you look at how much VC spent in the commercial side, for example, in 2022, it was north of $200 billion based on how you calculate. So there's a lot of commercial investment that's happening. It's not being effectively leveraged by the Department of Defense. That's sort of the core problem that we think the department should address and that the letter and the commission recommendations attempt to address. So then what are the things that are being recommended that could help inject that commercial innovation into the department? So there are a couple of things. One thing is building on successes to date. So for example, we shouldn't say that the acquisition process has been completely static and there haven't been attempts to to improve. There have. The uh, Department of Defense created, for example, the Defense Innovation Unit, the DIU, that has played a central role in injecting commercial technology into the Department of Defense, but it has not been well-funded. It has not been given, historically, a lot of authority to procure technology. Now, recently, and this was in fact a recommendation in the report that was released a few months ago, it's been elevated as a direct report to the Secretary of Defense. So that was a great step. So what are other things that can be done to build on that? One thing is providing funding to DIU to directly be able to fund technologies, to work on consolidating the efforts being done by other innovation organizations within DOD. There are actually many of them. There are organizations in all the different services. There are organizations that straddle the services. But these need to be coordinated. They need to be consolidated so the department has a better sense of where is the actual both demand signal within the department for specific technologies, and then also where in the commercial marketplace are solutions that can fit those needs. So funding those efforts correctly and consolidating those efforts is going to be the key here. And if you look at some of the solutions that are floating around that should be inculcated, such as yours or such as something in artificial intelligence, they all seem to be software. But is there innovation happening in material science or some other type of hardware area that's equally difficult in your experience? So that's a great point. So the traditional acquisition process was designed around acquiring large, exquisite hardware platforms, right? Ships, tanks, planes, and it makes sense. The process makes sense if what you're thinking about is acquiring these massive platforms over multi-year, sometimes multi-decade timelines. Much of the innovation that is happening today is happening on the software side, 
And these acquisition systems are not designed to leverage that innovation successfully. Now, to your point, yes, it's not just on the software side that innovation is taking place. There's all kinds of innovation taking place in the material sciences and other domains. And I think our broader position here is doing these kinds of changes will be helpful across the board. The technology is changing too fast now, both on the software and the hardware side, for us to do these very like rigid timelines where it takes two years to define a requirement, two years to figure out the budgeting process for it, two years to get a company on contract. That's not good whether you're a hardware provider or a software provider or you operate at the nexus of the two. Ahmed Hamayan is head of federal growth at Applied Intuition. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that letter at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, empty federal offices are bad for the economy. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Thanks to that extensive survey by the Government Accountability Office, we know just how empty federal offices really are. None of them are more than half full, and that's depressed the market for certain commodities a lot of vendors counted for each year as a kind of annuity. Federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me with more. And we're talking furniture, desks, that kind of stuff, which was always a good living for those that figured out how to sell it to the government. Tom, these are things that are good li- uh, good livings for the people that sell them, whether it's uh, office furniture, whether it's things like office supplies, multifunction devices, what we used to call printers, things of that nature. It's a significant part of the federal market when you think about the fact that the federal furniture market's a little over a billion dollars a year. doesn't always make headlines, but... You know, the old saying is that all adds up, right? And then when you particularly look into the office supply part of it that's shrinking, you know, that's got a socioeconomic part to it as well, because we're talking about a lot of small businesses that do significant business with the government. But we're also talking about the Ability One program, places like the National Industries for the Blind, that traditionally are heavily invested in providing those commodity type office supplies and other things that make an office function. But if you're not in that office, or if you're not in that office very much, then the market for those things is certainly going to be depressed. Yes, I can remember when agencies, like a lot of businesses, went through a big process to consolidate everyone so every manager didn't have a printer in his or her office, and they went to network printers. So it's unlikely that the government is buying printers for everyone that is working from their house. They'll say, well, print the PDF if you want to print it, and otherwise you're on your own for a physical output. So it's fair to say fewer printers are going in. Well, that's certainly right, and that's the anecdotal evidence that I'm hearing from some of the companies that I work with is that uh, the demand for that type of product and the demand for print management services is on the decline. And when you look at the numbers, not just the vacancy numbers, which, as GAO pointed out, are pretty substantial, Even if people are going back into the office, it's probably only for two, maybe three days a week in many cases. So even when you're there, you're not printing out as much as you were. Uh, You can further consolidate that office space, which is kind of what GAO was saying, which means that you can do things like share desks, share workstations, so you don't need to buy as many of them. 
Uh, you might need to buy some one-off stuff to keep everything current. But, you know, these large-scale buys, and again, they have ramifications outside of industry. Another mandatory source status uh, for federal agencies that is in this area is federal prison industries that uh, for decades has made a significant part of its business selling office furniture to federal agencies. So, you know, there are a lot of things here that go beyond the mere vacancy issue. Yes, the ability one, the federal prison industries, these have social value as well. And those people are simply not, I mean, the pens and all those supplies that came from the ability one program, that's got to be way off. You know, I think it is off. And, I, you know, there's a trend in the, that part of the ability one program, Tom, to get more into professional services. I think uh, the statistics such as these are only going to hasten that uh, transition into the provision of services. It's definitely a different model for some of these organizations that are used to selling physical products, but the times are changing and uh, people are going to need to keep pace. Yeah, probably Amazon is the big beneficiary if somebody wants that box of Bic sticks. It's just easier to get it on Amazon for $3.99 than to figure out how to get it from your agency. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I think, yeah, we're going to start to see some of the figures roll in here towards year end on GSA's commercial platform initiative that Amazon, Overstock Government, and Fisher Scientific are all part of. And I'm expecting that we're going to have some pretty sizable increases uh, in those sales numbers, Tom, and that could be this could be one reason why. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and there's a lot going on on the scene. We are in the final quarter of the fiscal year, and so there's a big buying to the extent that this year can produce a buying bonanza at all. And it's all pretty much, and we're looking at Bloomberg numbers here, through the big GWACs, the IDIQ contracts that are government-wide. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting, Tom. A few weeks ago, Bloomberg government came out with initial projections showing that Maybe 60% of all fourth quarter buys would go through standing indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, things like uh, NIH's CISP program, the GSA schedules, NASA soup, what have you. And then they revised those numbers. Bloomberg came out just last week and said not 60, but maybe as much as 66%, two thirds of all Q4 spending, Tom, going through these IDIQ vehicles, that's pretty significant. I think some of the reasons for that are obvious. One, they're fast and easy to use. Second, uh, they've got easy competition uh, features built into them. Third, there's a substantial amount of small business presence on most of these IDIQs. And for agencies that are trying to meet their end-of-year small business use numbers and do it in a fast and cost-effective way, IDIQ contracts just make sense. Right. And so that gives a clue to what vendors should be concentrating on, which is whatever vehicles you have existing and forget about the new open competition, starting fresh from scratch type of activity. If you want to have a chance of making your numbers this year, work your vehicles. Well, I think there's a lot to that, Tom. And certainly there are always going to be open market procurements that the government does. That's kind of the backbone of the system. But at fourth quarter, there simply isn't enough time to start every new acquisition from scratch. You need to get yourself halfway through the process at least. And that's another reason why IDIQ contracts are popular. So if you're a contractor, you definitely want to have 
some of these contracts in your portfolio, or at least work with companies, the partners that do, so you can sell through them. Not every contract has that feature, but many of them do. You want to make sure that, you know, you've got your IDIQ channel tuned up and ready to go because that's clearly where the business is. Now, that's this year and it was last year. Ironically, Tom, you and I have spent a fair amount of the time last several months talking about delays in getting new IDIQ contracts put in place. Most recently, that's been on the GSA Polaris program and also NIH's CIOS P4. IDIQ contracts are popular. We know they drive business. This is proof positive of that. And yet, because they're so popular, companies are looking at this as do or die. And the result is that the time it takes to put these new programs in place keeps expanding. So uh, we'll have to see if there's some sort of a tipping point in the future that says, you know, these are great vehicles, but we can't get new ones in place. So we're going to have to figure out something new. But for now, IDIQ contracts are certainly a very significant part of any company's government business. And briefly, I wanted to ask you about something else you're commenting on this week, and that is what you call the two-pronged compliance battlefront for contractors, including dealing with the Justice Department's Procurement Collusion Strike Force, which sounds like, wow, they're coming for me one way or another. It kind of sounds like Darth Vader is leading the Procurement Collusion Strike Force, Tom. You can almost hear the Empire music music playing in the background, but that's just one prong that contractors need to be aware of in terms of compliance. Certainly the government's tools, not just DOJ, but agency IGs, things like the Defense Contract Audit Agency, but you also need to look on the other side. And sometimes the other side is in your own backyard or maybe in your back office, and that's whistleblowers. Whistleblowers, typically disgruntled employees, former employees, even competitors, Tom. And I find that while there's always a risk of audit for a contractor, a lot of the bigger False Claims Act cases and a lot of the ones that certainly in terms of the sheer number are initiated by whistleblowers. And so if you're a contractor, you really have to pay attention to this two-front compliance battlefield. Yes, you need to make sure that everything's squared away for the auditor when the auditor comes knocking But you also need to make sure that you've got the processes in place for people to be heard, for complaints to be heard and processed so that people don't feel like the only way out is to file a whistleblower complaint. So it's both, you know, formal government and informal from your colleagues in industry. As always, I think compliance is pennies on the dollar, but you really do have to look at it as a two-front war. Yeah, and if a whistleblower comes to you first and says, hey, you know, we're overcharging on this contract, take it seriously, look at it before you end up in a False Claims Act situation where you could have punitive damages. It's far easier, Tom, to address issues when they come up as opposed to just letting them sit. It's great to have money rolling in, but if you know or should have known that you were overbilling on a contract, somebody calls it to your attention, and you do nothing about it, you're kind of setting your company up for a multi-year entanglement with all kinds of uh, the oversight community, lost revenue, fines potentially to pay, legal bills to pay, and then even up to and including loss of key personnel if you want to show people how you uh, take these things seriously and prevent yourself from being 
suspended from doing future business. Well, now that we've taken all of the joy out of the end of year Uh buying season, Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Coast Guard received complaints some 20 years ago of sexual abuse and assault at the Coast Guard Academy years before that. The complaint spiraled from one to 60 individual reports, and 10 years ago, Coast Guard Brass launched an investigation that lasted several years, but whatever it found was never made public. Until now, it was the subject of a congressional hearing, and joining me with the details, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, you were at that hearing, and the timeline came out. What exactly happened here? What happened is that the Coast Guard initiated an investigation into sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy in 2014. They had one complaint, and by the time they'd finished, the investigation took five years, and they had well over 60 complaints. Some of the kind of things they found were alleged perpetrators were not criminally investigated, and if someone was found to be responsible for wrongdoing, some of the punishments for it were as minor as getting extra homework or being lowered in class rankings. And many of these people who, who were alleged to have committed these acts went on to have very successful careers in the Coast Guard. The assaults allegedly took place between 1988 and 2006. The investigation, again, wasn't started until 2014, and it wasn't finished until about 2019. Recently, CNN filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get a copy of this report, which is called Fouled Anchor. And when the Coast Guard realized it was going to be made public, they went to Congress. It was the first time that it had been been made public or that Congress knew about it. So last Thursday, the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation held a subcommittee hearing on the Coast Guard budget, but it quickly became a hearing about the Academy's sexual assault report. Here's subcommittee chairwoman Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. The Coast Guard not only failed to properly investigate, prosecute, and report criminal acts of assault and rape when they initially occurred at the Academy, but failed again to prosecute or discipline the perpetrators during the subsequent investigation referred to as Operation Fouled Anchor. All right, so now it's all out and Congress has got its dander up. And how is the Coast Guard responding now? Admiral Linda Fagan is the commandant of the Coast Guard, and she's only been there about 13 months. So while it wasn't on her watch, it's clear that all of this blowing up last week caught her pretty flat-footed. The pattern of failure to address sexual assaults reports at the Coast Guard Academy. Sexual assault was a crime in the 1980s, and it is still a crime And there was a lack of policy clarity and clarity of uh, leadership with regard to how those reports needed to be handled, investigated, how the victims needed to be supported. We failed, the the cadets at at the Coast Guard Academy at that time period. What is the Coast Guard going to do now? Did she outlay any kind of concrete actions they can take? She did. She said they're planning a lot of changes to create levers for punishing sexual assault. A lot of those will be specifically at the academy, but also across the Coast Guard as a whole. She also mentioned that they need to hire a special prosecuting attorney like the other services have done in the last year or so. 
And then she's planning to spend the next couple of months developing a report on how all of this happened and how the culture allowed this to happen. Here's Admiral Fagan. I've uh, initiated a 90-day transparency and accountability review to understand what are the aspects of the culture that have allowed uh, this to occur. It started as legacy sexual assaults that were mishandled at the Coast Guard Academy, but it is clear to me that we've got a culture in areas that is permissive and allows sexual assaults, harassment, bullying, retaliation, that's inconsistent with our core values. It is not the workforce that, that I want or expect. And Congress, what do they plan to do, if anything, at this point? Well, as you said, they're pretty fired up about this. Last week, Congressman Jamie Raskin, ranking member of the Committee on Oversight and Accountability, and Representative Benny Thompson from the Committee on Homeland Security, sent a letter to Admiral Fagan requesting information by July 27th. Maria Cantwell, who's the co-chairman of the Commerce Committee, is saying that she's looking for a further investigation. Here's Maria Cantwell. We're going to get third party involved here to make sure that we have the oversight, the evaluation, and that Congress has transparency into the situation and, and what we need to do. This is interesting because there have been allegations of sexual harassment in the regular ranks at the Coast Guard in recent years, and the last couple of commandants have had to deal with that. This is specifically at the academy, things that happened a while ago. So it's really hard to tell what's the atmosphere at the academy at this point, at this time for the cadets that are enrolled there now. Did that come up at the hearing? It absolutely did. And you bring up a good point because Admiral Fagan was saying, we need to change the culture. And then when she was questioned on that by the senators, by Senator Cantwell specifically, she said, well, no, actually, the culture is fine now. It just wasn't before. And she said, the academy has made changes. It's much better. It's 40 percent women now. We're really in pretty good shape, but we just need to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future. Yeah, because whatever happens culturally in the academy is going to happen culturally in the Coast Guard because everyone gets out of the academy and has a career in the Coast Guard. And a career with a lot of authority in the Coast Guard. So it's it's the upper ranks that are going to set the tone for everyone else. And as far as appropriations for the Coast Guard, that didn't seem to be connected, right? I mean, whatever the Coast Guard is requesting that the Congress would normally appropriate, they didn't say they would withhold funds for anything until something's fixed at the hearing? They weren't saying they would withhold funds, but they were ex- saying that they expected answers and changes and real evidence of change very quickly. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Tom. And Alexandra has a story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Be sure to check that out. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 